Okay, well, look, uh, who was here last week? Okay, so most of you, but not all of you. Okay, great. Well, look, last week we looked at the vision and mission of Hope Church. And um, I went through in some detail what we're going to um, be looking at uh, over the next year. <clears throat> I just thought I'd do, as Ali suggested that I would, I will do a very quick overview of what we looked at last week to sort of, to sort of pin what I'm doing this week onto last week, if you see what I mean. So here's a quick reminder. So what was the vision for Hope Church? Doing church, I'm impressed. You know, that is way better than this morning. They just kind of looked at me blankly this morning. That, that is, yeah, we're going to do church bigger. That's what we're going to do. And um, so uh, what I looked at um, last week was I just had a, qu a quick sort of overview of 2019. And uh, because doing church bigger was our vision uh, 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 year before as well. Do you recall what God did with us? We saw this, didn't we? 33 people made first-time commitments to Christ. And we decided we were going to celebrate that. We saw some amazing healings, didn't we? Do you remember Gabriella's voice and Penny's ear and Frank's ankle and a whole bunch of other things probably I didn't mention as well? We saw just remarkably God breaking in among us. And uh, we said, well, that's good too. Uh, we launched the 4 p.m. service on a weekly basis. Come on. I think if anybody deserves a pat on the back, it's you. Come on for that one. And um, uh, that's good. And uh, we launched a variety as well and a greater number of connect groups. We had 270 people, I think very much with the help of a baptism that was held here, wasn't it? At some point last year, 170 odd people came along to that. Um, so 270 in total, which is very good. We baptized 12 people. And I know the afternoon did its first baptisms there as well, which is just fantastic to see. We had our largest ever alpha with um, something like 41 inquiries and, and 21 guests. I know Ian has gone down to Hastings today, and uh, so he's preaching three times. So he'll be able to get the, you know, the rights of me. I've only done it twice. Um, but um, he's gone down to encourage them with their alpha. So, you know, just what God is doing amongst us here is good. It's really good. I want us to be encouraged. What else did we see? We saw pyr pyromania. Our youth celebrations hit sort of record uh, levels for the first time. Yeah, we saw 150 come to Ashburnham, which is absolutely wonderful, double time before. New Day numbers were looking extremely good. Just some great, great stuff we saw last year. Really encouraging things that we should be encouraged by. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of stuff in church life that is not encouraging, isn't there, if we're honest. So let's be encouraged then by the stuff that is encouraging. And let's make that choice. Um, what else did we look at last week? Well, we just very quickly, I'll, I'll go through some of the social concern stuff that we did, the people that we support, the kids that we support in uh, Africa, the food store that we've got, um, which is just doing very well. And it looks like Tesco have supplied us, actually, with some of their tins. They've just knocked on our door and said, we've got a whole bunch of tins we can't use. Could you use them? Yes, we could. So uh, we gave away 20 hampers to local families. There's the shoebox appeal. There was the jeans appeal. This seminar that we looked at, we're going to be running again at the end of this month. We did that last year. There's the Tuesday Cafe, so the 150 to 200 people coming through that. Uh, we uh, provided a base for Peter Williams and the domestic abuse team. And then there was the amazing love of this church extended towards um, the family, Ruth's family, during her illness. And we decided that we were going to be encouraged by that. Now, what else did we see? <clears throat> 
We also saw the, uh, looked at the prophetic words that underpin this vision of doing church bigger. So we saw that it wasn't just because you know, we just fancied having a go at doing church bigger. Actually, doing church bigger is, is trying to boil down all these words, prophetic words that God has spoken to us over recent years. So it, you see what I mean? We're being led by God in it. That's what we're looking to do. We're not just you know, because I or somebody else fancies doing something. No, no, we're, we're going to try and be led by God in it. We also looked at the size of the task. Do you remember looking at this last week? Yeah, and do you remember we said, uh, actually, Seven Oaks Town is about 30,000 people. And we said if 15%, and that's being generous, I think, 15% of the town was saved, it means 24,500 people are unsaved. And I came out with this sort of, you know, zombie horror film title and said, Seven Oaks is a bit like the town of the living dead. Because it is alive physically, but the Bible says spiritually, most people therefore are dead. And we saw, wow, that's a sobering task. Sobering that we, when we see the scale uh, of that. And I hope that that uh, provoked you. <clears throat> then we also... Uh, looked at our five-year plan, and I went through the details of that, our desire to plant new congregations, our desire to make this building bigger, our desire to make the gospel bigger, and, and some various areas, and all that detail will be on the, on the website for you. And then we looked at this year, because five years is all very well, but we need to, need to know what we're doing this year, don't we? We absolutely be able to uh, grip this year, and we said that this year we wanted to build and grow. Build and grow. And that means we want to build and grow everything that we currently do. So your job, 4 o'clock service, this year is what? To grow and to build. It's to build and to grow. Yeah. I want to put a, that, that um, challenge in front of you. We don't just come along to church. Actually, we're trying to build something here, which means I want to encourage you to be inviting people to this service. Can you do that this year? To be thinking about, yeah, who can I invite to this service? Who can I invite to Alpha? Who can I invite to my connect group? Uh, how can I uh, can connect and engage with people in order to see God's uh, favor on our town uh, and on this uh, time? So will you rise to that? That's three of you. Excellent. <laughs> well, if the rest of you would join in at some stage, that'd be lovely. But yes, so that's what we saw that we were going to be busy rolling our sleeves up, inviting uh, people. And I hope that all of that helped to make our direction and our purpose clear. So this is what Hope Church is aiming for over the course of this year. I hope that was really clear. I hope there was nothing that was unclear about it, um, because I really want you to engage uh, and push in that direction. We also saw, I hope through all of this, that we are involved in the church the church of Jesus Christ. And actually, there's nothing more important in the world than the church of Jesus Christ. Nothing more important. And we are called to love it, to build it, to grow it, not just come along because it's a nice sort of middle-class activity to do on a Sunday. No, we come because we are fighting for lives. That's what we're doing. We're fighting for the lost. We're fighting for their eternity. The old phrase, we want to plunder hell. That's what we want to do. We want to see the lost born again, and we want to bring more glory to God. So that's a sort of a quick um, overview, really. This is the question I'd like to look at for the rest of today. So what can stop us? 
Are, are we unstoppable? Because we know that nothing can stop God. We sing the songs, don't we? Unstoppable God. I don't think we sang Lion and the Lamb today, did we? But there's a line in there that says, And who can stop the Lord Almighty? We sing it, don't we? We've all sung it. And of course, we know the answer is, well, no one. We all go, woohoo, in our heart. No, no one can stop God. Nothing can stop God. And actually, that's right, because we see that truth in Scripture. And here, here they are. Isaiah 14, 27 says this, For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? And we see that principle repeated in Job 42. Job replies to the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be no purpose of yours can be thwarted. <clears throat> Absolutely none. <clears throat> so he is awesomely powerful. And actually, we see when people try and stand up against the purposes of God, it doesn't go terribly well for them, does it? I mean, I'm just thinking of Pharaoh. I mean, it didn't work out well, did it? He said, no, 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 I'm not going to let your people go. I wonder if he regretted that by the end of it. I suspect he probably did. Didn't go well at all. So, does that mean then, if God is unstoppable, that the vision that we have set is unstoppable? Does that mean that? Is it, I mean, is, do we all, have all we got to do is rock up now and go like this, great. And now God will do it all and people will pour in and get saved. And God is unstoppable, but we are definitely stoppable, you and I. We absolutely are. We can be stopped. We can be discouraged. We can be put off course. We can be distracted. We can fail. Uh, God is perfect, but we are involved in the process, and uh, we are definitely the weak point in the chain, aren't we? Unfortunately. So uh, uh, there are a number of things that I believe that can stop this vision from happening, from coming to pass. And uh, that's kind of what I want to ponder on today. Now, on a general level, the Bible says this, that there are three main enemies that want to work against us. Who would like to tell me? What are the three main enemies? The devil, yeah. The world. And flesh, yeah. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what the Bible tells us. We have these three enemies that work actively against us. And I just want to say, church, these are real things. These are real things that actually work against. The devil is described in the Bible as a roaring lion. He's a hungry lion, and he is actively looking to devour those whom he can. He is, we are told, constantly accusing Christians day and night, 24 hours a day. That's the only thing the Bible says that the devil does 24 hours a day. He accuses Christians. He accuses Christians. Why does the devil accuse Christians? He doesn't want people to be saved. Absolutely. It's a really effective technique for uh, distracting you. See, the devil can't stop God, but he can stop you and me. So that's the plan. He utterly opposes all that God wants to do. And, you know, he will be hating any signs of progress made by this church. You know, that's the reality right now. Wherever the devil is, he thinks about any church that's doing well, and he hates it. Therefore, he will hate the fact that this church 
has made progress last year. He will hate that. And the fact that 75 to 90% of people in Seven Oaks are unsaved, he will be very happy about. That's, that's exactly what he wants. And he does not want that to change. So that's the devil. Uh, the world. Now, the world, absolutely. The world will always twinkle at you. Did you know the world twinkles at you? It shines at you and says, look, I am very shiny and I am very appealing. Why don't you come over here? Because I'm just amazing. And I can give you all the things you really want. I can give you materialism. And if you have money, it would say to you, you've got everything. And then that will guarantee you. Or it will say, if you want power, I can give you power. Just come over here. Just don't go over there with God. Come over here with me. So the world wants you to think like it does. The world wants you to conform to its thinking. It will say, don't think like that. Don't agree with God. Agree with me and then you'll get all this stuff. And where do we see the world most clearly? I, I think for most of us, we see it most clearly when it comes to our youth. When they hit 14, 15, 16, what happens at school? They want to be one of the cool kids. And the world says, if you want to be cool, don't be like that. Be like this. Come over here. Come on. I think that's uh, when we see it most clearly. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful enemy that seeks to take us off course. And then lastly, the flesh. And the flesh will cry out for its needs to be met. It will cry out and say, I want to be satisfied. It's all its desires and appetites. And, you know, we all have legitimate needs. We have, who's done freedom in Christ? Right, tell me, what are the three main needs of the security, acceptance, significance? Very good. Yes, there you go. Those are the three things that our flesh cries out to. And you know, the truth is we're all, we're all damaged to some degree. So it means that we will try and get those needs met sometimes in unhelpful places. Rather than saying, this is my relationship with Jesus. And I'm going to get my needs met through him. We'll go elsewhere. It's a powerful force. So those three things will uh, cry out to you. Now, what's the good news? <laughs> now, the good news is that Jesus has given us all that we need to defeat these enemies. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Yes? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, the Bible says that we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. It also says that we have been given a shield of faith. And it says we can put this shield of faith up like this. And all these fiery darts, as they're described in the Bible, that the, the enemy will throw at you, trying to get into you. All those fiery darts, you have a shield of faith that you can say no to. And it will keep them out. And we know that Jesus has overcome the enemy. Here it says in Galatians 5, doesn't it? I, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we are on the winning side. We can smile occasionally. We've been given everything we need, but there is a fight on. And we need to be aware of it. And that's my job today. Be aware of the fight that's on. Now, with all that in mind, I'd like to take a look at a group of people who had a very clear calling from God. They had a vision. 
And uh, even though God showed up very powerfully, he was clearly in their midst, and they had some amazingly gifted people uh, leading them, the fact is they failed to fulfill their vision. They failed, even though God was with them. They did not got hold, get hold of what God said he wanted to do with them. And eventually, God says this to them. I'm going to let you all die in the desert, and I'm going to raise up your children and I'm going to use them instead. Wow. And that's a heartbreaking account, isn't it? That is heartbreaking that God would say over a whole generation, I can't use you. I'm going to use a different generation instead. They went through so much, that generation. But they didn't make it in the end. So, question, how do we make sure that does not happen with us? We don't want to be that, like that, do we? No? Absolutely not. And obviously I'm talking here about the children of Israel. <clears throat> it's that first generation that came out of Egypt. They come out of the oppressive hand, from under the oppressive hand of the Egyptians. Now we're told something very specifically in the New Testament about that generation. In 1 Corinthians 10 it says this. Their example of failure is meant to be a warning to you and me. It's saying very specifically... The New Testament says to us, read that example, understand where they failed, and understand what not to do. And that's relevant for us, for us, in, in the time of Christ. And it says, learn what they did, so that you do not desire evil as they did. Wow. Now we're told that there are four things that stopped that generation. Who can tell me, what are the four things that stopped that generation? I'm getting you to work today a bit, aren't I? What are the four things that stop the children of that first generation fulfilling the vision that God gave them? Idolatry was one of them. Grumbling and complaining. Yeah, amazingly, that was in there. Netflix. <laughs> Okay, here are the four. Grumbling and complaining, idolatry, uh, sexual immorality, and testing the Lord. It says very specifically, those four things stopped that generation fulfilling the purposes of God for them. And that is why God said to them, I cannot use you because of those four things. So I've been uh, reading the story of the Exodus again and just looking at it, trying to study it again. And uh, <clears throat> I've got some observations about the behavior of that generation, about their habits and their practices. And I think some of their habits and practices lead up to those four failings. And I'd just like to look at some of their habits and their, and their practices to see uh, if we can learn some stuff from it. So why did the Israelites fail? Well, here's the first one. They failed to rejoice in the good things that God did among them. They failed to do it. Uh, often when they've, got, when they've got into the desert, they are really in need of water. I mean, if, when you're in a desert, you need water, don't you? And they cry out for water at times. And they cry out uh, for bread. And uh, what they do is they go to Moses and they just grumble at him. 
And they just say, we haven't got any bread. We haven't got anything to eat or drink. What's going on? And then they moan and they moan at him. And Moses goes to God and cries out to God and says, God, please will you provide? And then just, there are some amazing accounts. At one point, Moses is told to go to a rock and hit the rock with a stick. And as he hits it, water then flows out of this rock and feeds all these thousands of, uh, feeds, uh, provides water for, for these thousands of people. Incredible. There's another time when they say, we need bread. So God says, right, tomorrow morning when you wake up, I am going to f- cover the ground with food. And all you need to do is go out and pick it up. And in the morning, they come out of their tents. And they look around, and then they look on the ground, and what do they say? Do they say, God, thank you so much for your provision to us. We worship you. Which is what they should have been saying. No, what they say is, what is it? What is it? Because that's what manna means. What is it? What, what is it? That's all they say. What is it then? And I can imagine somebody else saying, I don't know. Mm, all right, shove it in your mouth, see if it tastes of anything. Oh, it's quite nice, actually. Yeah, God is providing for them in the most extraordinary way. And there isn't a heart of response that just says, God, thank you for what you are doing. They just grumble. Just extraordinary. Let me ask you, are you rejoicing about what God is doing for you in your life? Are you rejoicing about what God is doing for us? When Ian or I or someone else gets up here and says, hey, somebody else has been saved. Do you say, oh, that's good, isn't it? Do you? Or when somebody's healed, how do you react to that? It's good for them, I suppose. It's no good for me. Can I just say to you, salvation and healing is the kingdom of God coming among us. That is what the kingdom looks like. That's what we need to be excited about when we see God breaking in. And I just have a feeling, particularly this year, just a gut feeling really, I think Thanksgiving is going to be particularly important for us this year. I think giving thanks for every single person that we see saved, every single healing, every single story of freedom, when we hear it, can I encourage you to respond with a thank you, Jesus. And not say, oh, one of those again. Do you see what I mean? We've got to get out of the wrong habits. We must not allow the wrong habits because the wrong habits lead to grumbling. And we don't want that. And idolatry as well. Okay, so let's delight in the good things that God does for us. What's the second one? I think as you look at the children of Israel, you find there are people here who fail to engage with the vision that God gave them. See, God had given that generation a very clear vision. I'm going to take you out of Egypt, and I'm going to take you to the land of milk and honey, the promised land. So you're going from there to there. That's the vision. Way. And what you see is initially, they cooperate because it gets them out of slavery. They're not being beaten anymore. So they're all saying, this is good. We like this. Well, yes, good. But then very quickly, what you see is the people don't want to engage with the vision. It says after three days of being in the desert, three, they start to grumble. 
Why do they grumble? They grumble because they found out that pursuing the vision of God means lack and discomfort. And they don't like it. They, somebody asked me to be on the rotor three times this month. If that Moses asked me again, I tell you what, I'm, I'm out of here. See, if we're not passionate about the purpose of God, if we're not passionate about him and what he is doing, his vision, we're going to end up grumblers. That's what we're going to end up. In fact, more than that, we'll end up resenting the vision. We'll resent it because suddenly it's going to cost you a bit. Oh, do I have to? See, if you're passionate about God, passion will get you through the pain of the discomfort. <clears throat> Actually, if that gets too bad, what will end up happen is we'll want to go back to being a smaller church. Because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to go back to where they started from. And you'll say, we don't want to do church bigger. We want to do church smaller, please. Because it's more convenient to me. So let's engage with the vision. And let's be passionate about what God has given us to do. Third point. I think when you look at the uh, children of Israel, they don't break free from old habits and old thinking. They don't break... Let, let me just... Uh, let me just have a look at some of the thinking that they learnt when they were in Egypt. So when they were in Egypt, they were slaves. And they had slave masters. And these slave masters used to beat them with whips. And uh, they learnt at that point to grumble about their slave master with good reason. This guy beats me. I hate, I hate him. Do you hate him? Yeah, I hate him too. We don't like her. Now God comes and sets them free, and they are now free people. What do they do to their new master, Moses? Well, they've learned a habit to grumble at their old guy. Now Moses comes, and they just grumble at him instead. Oh, Moses, you just... They've learned something in Egypt, and they don't change their thinking when they come out of Egypt into a new environment. Here's another one. How about this? If you read through the stories, you'll notice that uh, occasionally, um, on a fair few occasions, when something goes wrong, this is what the, Egyptian, the um, Israelites do. They say, they say to Moses, the only reason God brought us out into the desert was to kill us. He hates us and he wants to kill us. Now, where did that thinking come from? Well, if you go back to their old life, we know that the Egyptians hated the Israelites. In fact, Pharaoh, when Moses was born, tried to kill off all the male babies. We read that in Scripture. And we know that they were beaten. So therefore, the, the Israelites would have grown up knowing that if a few of them died at the hands of their slave masters, that would be fine. In other words, we want you dead. And that's what the environment they grew up in. They then get set free. From a life of slavery, they then come into the land of freedom. Sorry, they then uh, come out into freedom. And what pops up is that old thinking. When we're in trouble, it means you hate us and you want to kill us. It's where they'd learnt it was Egypt. They didn't change their thinking. Uh, <clears throat> Tim Keller talks about church growth. And he refers to the famous... 200 barrier. 
So when a church gets to 200, it's, it's a famous, well-known barrier. And what happens is that the culture of that church changes. Suddenly, it's a new environment. Suddenly, it's not a little church anymore. Now, if you've grown up in a little church with small church thinking, and you try and do church in a larger church, it's not going to work well. So this is the kind of thinking you'll have if you've grown up in a small church. You'll have an expectation that you will know everyone on a Sunday. When you walk into the main meeting, you'll know pretty much everyone. You'll, have, you'll expect to have access to anybody that you want. You will have a sense of importance and influence. Because if you're part of a family of five and there are only 50 people in the church, and you don't go one Sunday, 10% of the church hasn't gone. And that matters. Suddenly, if you walk into a church, as five of you into a church of 500, it doesn't kind of carry the same weight. Small churches also have an ability to make quick changes and introduce new things quickly. So you would expect to say, well, I've got an idea. Let's do it. Okay, next month we're going to do this then. Larger church, you can't do that. Let me ask you, what kind of thinking do you have? As we grow, and as this service grows, as the overall church grows, can you adjust your thinking? Can you have new thinking? If you're wanting close, intimate connection with people, now your connect group is the place to get that. You're going to have to think differently. Does that make sense? Yeah. Fourth one. They saw the job as too big. We know that when Moses started to walk and the the people of Israel came to the promised land, they got to the edge of the promised land and they looked into it. And so Moses said, we're going to send spent, that's difficult to say, we're going to send 10 spies uh, to, to spy out the land. And they all came back saying, it's a fantastic land. It's just looked amazing. But eight of them said, but there are giants in the land. They're enormous. And we are tiny. We're just grasshoppers. Only two of them said we can do it. The job was too big. Easy for us to have the same mentality. So when I talk about 24,500 people in Sevenoaks who need saving, who are all dead in their sin, how do you react? Do you say, but we're only 200 people in the hall. What can we do? Or do we say, no, we have a God who is able to take a town for, for himself. He is able to save large numbers. We might not know how, but we know he is able. So I want to encourage you. <clears throat> Let's go for faith. How big is your God? It's not ultimately down to us. It's down to him. We cooperate with his vision and his purposes. Actually, this is where they started to test the Lord because effectively they were saying, we don't believe you. We don't believe that you're able to. Let me ask you, do you believe that God is able to do it? Last one. They couldn't lead themselves. They couldn't. They were a group of people that didn't know how to lead themselves. When Moses, they arrive at Mount Sinai and then Moses goes up this mountain for 40 days. 
disappears and they all say this. As for this Moses, we don't know where he's gone. What they're saying is, the guy who provided leadership, godly leadership in our life, has gone. And we're now at a loose end. What should we do? What should we do? And immediately, they get into, they think, I tell you what, a great idea would be, let's make a great big golden calf and worship it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, let's do that. And that's immediately what they do. And it says, they then start um, being sexually immoral. Boom. They demonstrate no personal leadership at all of their own hearts. <clears throat> How are you doing with your personal disciplines? How are you doing when it comes to... When did you last worship on your own? When's the last time you were in the kitchen and you just closed the door, you put the music on and you lifted your hands and said, Jesus, I'm just going to worship you now. When's the last time you did that? It doesn't have to be your kitchen, you understand. But <clears throat> when's the last time you did that? How are you doing with reading your Bible? When's the last time you said, did you see this? When's the last time you did that? How are you doing with praying? Husbands and wives, this is a tricky one because I know it is for me. How are you doing with praying together? It's a tough one that most husbands and wives will say, that's difficult. I've been at a leader's weekend over the last couple of days. The number of people said, yeah, we find this so difficult. These disciplines are how you grow. That's how you grow as a Christian. They, put, they fortify you. They strengthen you. That's, that's when you encounter Jesus. That's when you grow. And that's when you are able to hear him and then you're able to lead yourself. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you that you are a good God. I thank you, Father, that you have been so gracious to us over the last year. And I want to thank you that we are seeing your purposes and your plans being worked out. We're not sure, Lord, how you're doing it, but we are observing you and just saying, God, you're amazing. And uh, right now, again, we want to thank you for the good things that you're doing among us. I want to thank you that you have a clear purpose and a plan for us. And Father, again, we say we want to bow the knee to you and we want to cooperate with your purposes and plans. Father, we don't want to uh, be tokenistic about it. We, we don't want to just be going off and doing something else. So Holy Spirit, would you fall freshly, please, on us as a whole church? Father, would you cause us to rise up inside and to say yes to you? I pray even for this next week or so that you'd give us friends to talk to about you and to invite to church, invite to Alpha. I want to ask you that this would be a dynamic year of seeing your kingdom come, seeing your purposes fulfilled. God, we look to you and I ask you to provoke us in Jesus' name. Amen.